Shift is brought to you by Scheffler Group. Scheffler Group, we pioneer motion. As a manufacturer of precision components and systems for 70 plus years, Scheffler has become a leading global automotive and industrial supplier. Together with our customers, we drive forward-thinking technologies and develop the innovations that make motion and mobility more efficient, intelligent, and sustainable. To learn more, visit scheffler.us. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shift, a podcast about mobility. I'm Pete Bigelow, your host. Nearly 400 crashes involving driver assist systems and 130 more involving autonomous vehicles have occurred on American roads. That's according to recent data released by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. What do we know about those crashes? Not much. Those numbers provide a snapshot glance and not much more. So here to put some context around them is this week's guest, Kelly Funkhauser of Consumer Reports. Kelly has some takeaways from those recent crash reports and she has a deep expertise in understanding how driver assist systems are working on the road today, how their capabilities are evolving, and where the blind spots still remain. We've got a lot to discuss, so without further ado, here's my conversation with Consumer Reports Manager of Vehicle Technology, Kelly Funkhauser. Kelly, great to have you on the podcast today. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Excellent. Well, let's let's dive right in here. As you know, last month, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration released this trove of crash data related to driver assist systems and automated driving systems in the real world. If you had any big takeaways, which is a big uh, qualifier there, uh, what takeaways did you have from, from those reports? Probably the biggest takeaway is I noticed that there were far too few reported incidents, um, especially from most of the manufacturers. I think the large majority of the uh, reports were from Tesla and surprisingly Honda. But noticeably, we were missing all of the other brands like Toyota, like Ford, all of these other brands that we know have the same technology as both Honda and Tesla. And so it was a little bit of a disappointment actually to see that really only Honda and Tesla were reporting their data. Is, is it a reporting challenge that led to that disparity? We're not saying that we think uh, Honda and, and Tesla had the most crashes or maybe they have the most vehicles uh, gathering real world miles, but what, so what, what leads to a disparity like that? Yeah, so first I'm gonna back up just a little bit. Um, the fact that it was Honda and Tesla is quite telling. So at Consumer Reports, we released a report last November that shows 50% of the 2021 models have both lane centering and adaptive cruise control available on their vehicles. And so it's not just Honda and Tesla that has this, but also Honda has something very similar to Tesla, which is noteworthy. Um, So back to the reporting question, I think there's two things that come into it. One is that there's probably a confusion amongst a lot of people in the industry, regulators, the automakers, and then pretty much everyone in between um, as to what exactly these technologies are and how we're defining them. So the original Standing General Order, SGO, that came out last year, um, it 
basically said any vehicle that has a level two air quotes, huge air quotes, level two driver assist system that they should report their crashes. But level two itself is a very confusing and nuanced term that was essentially created by SAE, Society of Automotive Engineers, uh, written by SAE for SAE, so written by engineers for engineers, and it has a whole lot of engineering jargon in there. And there's also a whole lot of vagueness in there as well. And so defining exactly what these technologies are um, is kind of difficult. And just a quick note on that, um, the report I just mentioned, when we were working on you know, the availability within the market of these technologies, I reached out to all of the manufacturers and said, how would you self-describe or label these features? And it was surprising that most of them said, yes, this is a lane centering feature and this is adaptive cruise control and they can be on at the same time. Therefore, we might assume level two. But surprisingly, we heard from at least one automaker that they said, yes, it's lane centering. Yes, it's adaptive cruise control, but no, it is absolutely not L2. So I think that's <laughs> kind of one of the big problems there. I see that leads me to a philosophical question. Is a level two driver assist system by definition lane centering plus adaptive cruise control? Is it one plus one equals two or, or is there some other secret sauce that would, that would make that not the case, that it's something different? Yeah, so in those um, SAE levels, the, the you know, J3016 document, they basically describe the, you know, controlling the steering as well as the speed, so braking and acceleration. When those two features are being used simultaneously, then that's level two. So, um, you know, I'm also confused as to how uh, adaptive cruise control and lane centering are not level two in some cases. Um, so yeah, uh, that's, that's the definition that most people go by, but yeah, clearly there's confusion there. For sure. For sure. And I guess a, another question I have is, are you saying Kelly, that manufacturers have a different understanding of what level two is a different understanding of what NHTSA was asking for, uh, related to these particular, uh, you know, crash reports or, or both those things? Definitely both. I think you know, the NHTSA level, I think that there is some unfamiliarity with a lot of the systems that are out there. You know, the biggest manufacturer that's constantly making the headlines is Tesla. And they've also chosen to give their systems names like autopilot and full self-driving, whereas other manufacturers may have chosen different names or not even really named the combination of those two features as a named system. And so, you know, it, it, it is confusing when, you know, say, for example, Hyundai, um, they have a lane centering feature that can be on and off completely independent of adaptive cruise control. They can have adaptive cruise control on and off completely independent of lane centering. You can have them both on, you can have neither on or any combination of that. Whereas other manufacturers may have kind of a stepwise process to turn on and activate those features. You have to have ACC on first, then you can turn on lane centering and then suddenly it's this magically named system. And so, yeah, it, you know, most of those are the one plus one equals three because, you know, you can't experience each of them independently. And now you have all of a sudden this whew, 
three. It's a it's a magic system that is highly capable. And so I think that is a huge issue for sure. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Jumping back to what you said at the beginning, there's this flip side of what's been reported and it's what's not been reported and manufacturers who are missing uh, in some form or fashion from the data at all. What what do we take away from that in terms of, are we assuming that they're just not reporting things, that they're not having crashes at nearly the same uh, volume as others? What, what do we take away from the, the missing data essentially? Yeah, so you know, defining and, and terminology and all of that aside, I think that um, unfortunately, the capabilities and data um, logging of Tesla really was a disservice to them for all of their reporting. So they do have a lot of ability to record data and um, you know then transmit that to NHTSA. And so I think that unfortunately, them being in a way, you know, the the good citizens in this case kind of looked poorly on them. But that doesn't mean that the other manufacturers who aren't doing that get a pass. I think that you know most of the cars out there have a, a cell phone chip in it and a modem, and they're recording all sorts of crazy data that would probably shock a lot of people. Um, and so the fact that they are not reporting when these two systems are on and the car is in a crash, that is a problem. Um, and so, you know, it kind of leads to well, why it could be that um, manufacturers are not actually receiving data back from the cars, which would be a little surprising to me. We know that when the airbags deploy in a crash, there are these automatic crash notifications that are sent. Um, and so, you know, also to record the lane centering and adaptive cruise control features, whether or not they were on. It seems like they have the capability. Maybe they're not getting it back. Maybe they're willfully ignoring this data and not asking for it because it could look bad for them. Um, or maybe it's the third party system, the telematics provider, essentially cell phone providers that are the ones that have this data. Um, so I'm not sure exactly what is going on, but it seems like something that is very easy to record is likely already being recorded. And so the fact that it's not getting to NHTSA, I think is definitely worth looking into. Yeah. If I remember correctly, the National Transportation Safety Board had said about out of one of its investigations, maybe the very first one involving a, a Tesla driver assist system uh, involved in a crash, that that having these data recording capabilities was was very important. And, and now you're telling me that the capabilities probably exist and that they're just not being used in a standardized way from manufacturer to manufacturer. Is that about right? Yeah, it probably exists. And I don't know how it's being recorded, who it's being transmitted to, if it's being transmitted. You know, it, we do want to be careful to not send out too much information that becomes damaging to consumers. But this type of information, I think, is really important to be able to assess the efficacy and safety of these systems. And so it's likely that the technology is there and it seems like a pretty simple ask, but I don't know what's going on behind the scenes. One of the uh, you know, related aspects to that that I thought was interesting in the NHTSA reports was that they asked for crashes within or information related to crashes within 30 seconds of uh, you know, a driver assist system being used. Do we, do we gain any insight from these? I think we spend a lot of time collectively in the media and on Twitter, perhaps talking about how little we learn from these reports, but do we gain any useful knowledge about what's happening in the timeframes immediately before these crashes took place? 
Yeah, um, 30 seconds perhaps might be a little bit um, egregious, but definitely, you know, between up to like 10 and 15 seconds, I think is absolutely vital to really understand what was going on before, especially um, requiring, you know, the, the seconds leading up to that, whether or not the features were activated is, is really kind of the key, right? So if they were either automatically disengaged by the system seconds before the crash, that is important because, you know, those features were on essentially leading up to the crash, but you don't want to allow manufacturers to kind of have that loophole of, well, it wasn't on technically because it turned off a split second before. Um, so, you know, that's, that's definitely one thing. Um, that is important to know, but also, you know, interacting with these features. I mentioned a little bit ago, some of these systems, you can turn on the buttons independently. Some you have to do step A, then step B, and then you get magic C. Interacting with the, the controls and displays in the cars are getting more complicated. And I think it's, you know, something we should keep an eye on in terms of, is that a, a contributor to some of these crashes? Kelly, you've mentioned lane centering a couple of times. And I'm curious, is lane centering the same thing as lane keeping, and are those definitely is if they're not exactly the same, are they interchangeable? Yes, this is one of those very nuanced questions that gets really technical. So bear with me here. A few years ago, you know, the past two to five years, we've seen a lot of these lane assist type of features coming to market, and for a while a lot of them kind of, you know, were all over the map in terms of their capabilities, turning them on, what they're called, what they do, when they do it, all that stuff. And uh, we've started to really see this divergence in almost two features now. So lane keeping, which is usually a feature that is reactive and um, comes on at the last possible second when you're either about to cross, touched, or just begin to cross a lane line. Whereas lane centering is more of a sustained type of feature where it's always trying to keep the vehicle not only within the lane, but within the, you know, close to or near the center of the lane. Um, and so, you know, we've, we've kind of started to make this movement towards defining these as two different features with two different goals, really to help consumers understand that, you know, perhaps their lane keeping system isn't broken or just a, a very bad version of lane centering, um, but also then to, you know, distinguish the difference between a lane keeping system that is more likely to have a potential safety benefit of, of reducing crashes compared to lane centering, which actually has the potential to create risk to the driver by taking over, you know, the steering control and removing the driver in a way a little bit from the, the act of doing the steering um, could potentially cause either overconfidence, overreliance, induced distraction, things like that. So it's important for us to kind of try to differentiate this. Perhaps along those lines, then Consumer Reports has its latest round of driver test system testing coming up this month. Do you distinguish between those two things? And, and is that a change from previous tests? Yeah, um, we, we do now. So back in 2018, when we first started this, we kind of highlighted the you know, systems at the time that were named and making the headlines and, you know, the autopilots, the super crews, the pro pilot, pilot assist at the time. Um, and, but then two years ago, we tried to really incorporate, you know, a, a, a market-wide analysis to compare the best available lane assist, lane keeping system from each brand. This year, since we're on this kind of two-year cadence, this year we are going to 
not include systems that are the lane keeping version of the feature um, and only include those that have the lane centering. Because again, like I said, you know, combining lane centering with adaptive cruise control is where we want to focus because that could be concerning and create this new risk. And so we're looking for, you know, safeguards for the drivers when they're using those systems. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Tell me about your testing in general. Where, where does Consumer Reports do this? Uh, how, many, how many cars, how many people are involved? What does this testing operation look like? Oh my goodness. This is where I definitely non-humble brag. Um, so we are located in Connecticut in this little town called Colchester. It's about 45 minutes south of Hartford. And we have 327 acres of test track. We have a lot of roadways of different shapes, styles, sizes, straights, handling course, all of the deviations. Um, we officially test about 50 vehicles a year. And the important thing about those cars are as a nonprofit, as Consumer Reports is a nonprofit, we purchase those vehicles anonymously. And we also purchase the kind of highest volume trim. So instead of, you know, some of these other road and track, car and driver, other automotive, more enthusiast type of, of publications, we are really focused on representing a vehicle that the consumer is most likely to buy. If you go into a dealer, this is the one you're probably gonna end up with more times than not. And so that's where some of our ratings do slightly differ. Um, so if you've ever noticed that in, in some of our reviews of cars, that is exactly why. So 50 cars officially test, but we do experience the press cars, the ones with all the bells and whistles. Um, <laughs> we actually have a, um, a slingshot here, a three wheel <laughs> slingshot here. So we're definitely not testing that, but we are definitely enjoying every single minute of having it at the track, especially because it's bright red and it's just ridiculous and ridiculously awesome. So that is what I do for my day job. That's really funny. It's, it's funny that of all the vehicles that you could mention that that's the one that stands out, right? <laughs> just because it's here, literally parked right outside. And so, yeah, it's like, oh my goodness, like, how is this my real job? <laughs> excellent. Excellent. We're going to take a quick break from my conversation with Kelly for a word from this week's sponsor. Scheffler Group. We pioneer motion. There's no denying the future of mobility is changing. And with that, so are the needs of manufacturers. Only a fundamental transformation of mobility and energy systems will lead to a sustainable and environmentally compatible future. At Scheffler, we embrace transformation and explore the future, understanding that insight and innovation are key to adapting to the challenges facing our world and our customers. As a global automotive supplier that manufactures precision components and systems, we've taken advantage of our expertise in mechanical components, manufacturing processes, and winding technologies plus our knowledge of systems to mass-produce exciting, advanced, and future-ready products. The result is an extensive portfolio for electrification and autonomous driving technologies for both passenger cars and commercial vehicles, all designed with high vertical integration, modularity, and scalability in mind. Together with our customers, Scheffler drives forward-thinking technologies and develops the innovations that make motion and mobility more efficient, intelligent, and sustainable. To learn more, visit scheffler.us. 
And now back to my conversation with Kelly Funkhauser, Manager of Vehicle Technology at Consumer Reports. Uh, I'm curious, kind of going back to driver assist systems, I assume that uh, the Slingshot does not have one, but you can correct me if I'm wrong on that. <laughs> uh, one of the other ways that I feel like the ADAS systems have evolved since you started testing in 2018 would be in the driver monitoring realm. I'm curious how your tests have evolved in that sense, and is that a requirement for a, a driver assist system these days? Yes, um, you're speaking my language now. Just as I mentioned, some of these systems that you know control the speed as well as steering in a vehicle really you know are concerning because Consumer Reports is part of um, a consortium, a research consortium out of MIT called ADT, Advanced Vehicle Technologies, and part of our research we have a lot of vehicles in our test fleet. And it's really unfortunate that in watching, especially Tesla drivers, we find that when they have autopilot on, so the lane centering and adaptive cruise control, if they're distracted, we see in video, we have video of these drivers and, you know, maybe they're looking at their phone, they're looking at their infotainment system, something, you know, not at the road. And they see out of the corner of their eye, this, you know, blue flashing is the indicator of please touch the steering wheel in the Tesla. You know, they may see that out of the corner of their eye. They'll reach over and give the steering wheel a little tug, not too hard to turn it off, but just the right amount, dismiss the warning, go back to exactly what they were doing. And at no point did they even look at the roadway. And so this is really, really concerning that essentially Tesla has created a system that enables and allows drivers to do this. And that's, that's unfortunate. And so we are, you know, huge proponents of safe products. And if, if a product is being put out by a manufacturer that can create this type of risk that is extremely concerning, um, we think that it's, it's also the manufacturer's responsibility to put a safeguard in place to ensure that drivers are not doing this. And so, you know, we're looking for, at this point, the technology is camera-based, um, infrared or vision type of, of cameras for driver monitoring to, at a minimum, you know, Make sure the driver's awake, looking ish towards the road, ish. <laughs> um, we're not even, you know, going and setting out all these crazy standards right now. But you know, it's it's not fair to consumers to really kind of set them up for this experience where they can put themselves into risky scenarios when we know it could be avoided. That to me is almost the million dollar question, right? Like. Why are we adding these driver assist systems to cars? Are they safer? Are they inviting this kind of dangerous complacency that you just mentioned? Are they just a convenience feature? So we basically identify them as a convenience feature right now. And that is because there are no safety data to date to show that, you know, level two type of systems or even these lane keeping systems have reduced crashes you know, reduced injury and fatalities, anything like that. And so, you know, until we have that data, we stand by the fact that, you know, there's a potential for them to be safety features. Um, adaptive cruise control being a great example, how it's designed is to, you know, give you a little bit more headway than maybe you might've been if you were tailgating someone. Um, so we see the potential for them to be safety features, but the data is just not there compared to these other proven safety features like automatic emergency braking, forward collision warning, and things like that. So yeah, convenience and also potentially risky convenience features. So it's inducing this new type of risk that we're you know, really concerned about. Is there hope that as NHTSA continues to collect this data, 
particularly in the driver assistance realm, since that's what we're talking about, that you will get the data that shows that these systems are safer, are you know, no better, no worse, are are more dangerous, or or do you not see that coming from their collection efforts, even as the the years and months go go past? So it's really difficult, actually, to get at that specific question. Even in you know, let's use Tesla as an example, since we've been using it all day. Um, their package of autopilot that includes their traffic aware cruise control, which is their ACC, and their auto steer, which is their lane centering also includes automatic emergency braking, forward collision warning, and all of these other proven safety features. And so as a whole, autopilot is, does show a reduction in crashes, injuries, and deaths. However, if you were to look at data of just those active safety features, the forward collision warning, AD, et cetera, and compare those numbers to the ones coming out of the autopilot data, um, there's no added benefit or more reduced crash data on those. And so this is true for most of the brands out there. If you're getting these more advanced type of systems, the lane centering and, and adaptive cruise control, odds are you've also got all of the other bells and whistles too. And so it's hard to parse that out specifically. That's very interesting. And one of the hard things I feel like with some of those systems especially like with consumers are, they're all similar, but not exactly the same as we've covered. They all have different names from manufacturer to manufacturer and, or were even those of us who, who should know, consider these uh, in slightly different ways or with slightly de- different definitions as we kind of covered earlier. So with that as a preamble, I guess, tell me about your efforts uh, at an initiative that you founded called Clearing the Confusion. Yeah, so this is definitely a project near and dear to my heart. I started working on this well before I ever came to Consumer Reports. I was still back in grad school and kind of, you know, realized that there was this big issue of every brand putting their brand naming into the technologies. And then, you know, me as a a researcher in grad school trying to figure out exactly if if vehicle A has the same thing as vehicle B, it's like it was just totally mind boggling to figure out. And so, yeah, after coming to Consumer Reports, I worked very, very closely with AAA. So I can't take um, even all, like remotely all of the credit for it. But AAA also helped kind of get this initiative really underway to establish a glossary of ADAS terms. And so it's a glossary that's called Clearing the Confusion. And it's meant to do exactly that. Um, it's very uh, appropriately named. And we break down, you know, all of these newer types of technologies like, you know, automatic emergency braking and blind spot warning and, you know, have a standard term and a general description definition of what these do. And so the initiative really is aimed to consumers as well as automakers, as well as regulators. So our audience is everybody. Media is just as important to, you know, use these same terms so that the consumers understand what the manufacturers have and don't have and what they're called. And so it's really kind of a joint effort to get everyone speaking the same language. Do in-market consumers understand, if, if they don't understand the nuances, do they at least understand that this is a question out there or are they just oblivious to all these, all these things that we're talking about? Yeah. So part of clearing the confusion is to establish, you know, a a standard high-level term, such as automatic emergency braking, 
And then, you know, the idea is to throw in all of the nuances with pedestrian detection, with, you know, rear automatic emergency braking, with kangaroo, whatever, who knows what kind of a detection and braking you have, but basically use automatic emergency braking as the term, and then put in these nuances to help consumers understand what is different about this specific automatic emergency braking, but essentially AEB is AEB and, you know, don't use whatever tronic or collision imminent braking or all of these other words out there, stick to one and then be descriptive as to what is different about this specific system. Gotcha. Okay. Kelly, so far we've talked a lot about driver assist systems. Uh, I want to finish up with a lightning round on some other topics in the automotive realm that, that I know you, uh, you have a lot of expertise on. Let's turn to autonomous driving for a moment. You were in Metro Phoenix recently riding in Waymo robo taxis. What was your experience like and what did you learn? So I'm immediately upon getting in those cars, which I have a lot of experience with a, you know, driver assist type and level two-ish, level three-ish, whatever systems. I felt that the Waymo specifically was a little bit more standout in how it drove and behaved much more like a human than some of these other driver assist systems. However, I was really disappointed in the actual physical boundaries in which it operated. And it's really important that this type of messaging gets out to consumers is that the Waymo, although very impressive, is essentially a vehicle driving on virtual railroad tracks. So basically it's a a very, very small metro area that has been extensively mapped using all of the latest and greatest Google available technology, and it can't operate outside of that. And so, you know, yes, it's impressive at what it does, but there's also, you know, a lot of kind of stuff going on behind the scenes that consumers should be aware of that makes us much further away from BMO, being able to pick them up anywhere, whenever, wherever, you know, that's much further in the future than and you might think if you just get in a window for the first time. Yeah. You know, I was in Chandler last October, I guess, and probably did a similar trip. Yeah. And I was so impressed really that here's something we've talked about for all these years now in actual commercial operation that I could arrive at my hotel as just, you know, any, any old guy off a plane and download the app and the Waymo showed up. But to your point, I could not, take a Waymo from the airport to my hotel. I could not take it to Arizona State University, which I imagined would be a a theoretical lucrative market for them. And for all the billions that have been spent, it's operating very well in this very specific area. Yeah, but I do want to point out that it's probably the better approach to do this as a small scale operation in a very controlled environment to work out all of the small bugs and kinks before, you know, going larger scale, as in contrast to some of these systems like Tesla's, you know, full self-driving beta, where you can take it virtually anywhere you want to go. But, you know, there are a lot, a lot of bugs and kinks and quirks and questionable things that, um, you know, the vehicle does. And so, you know, there's kind of these two different pathways. And I think that, you know, for the sake of the safety of other roadway users that are sharing the roads with all of these vehicles, I think it's better to take the more conservative route 
than to put anyone else that didn't sign up to be the driver and, and push okay on all the legal messages that pop up. Um, you know, we don't want to put them into a precarious situation either. Understood. All right. Let me ask you about another topic, Kelly. Uh, you have led a lot of discussions about connected vehicle safety technology. Uh, you have commented, uh, I believe, to the Federal Communications Commission specifically on this DSRC versus cellular V to X debates, which we know ended with the FCC stripping the auto industry of a lot of its allocated safety spectrum. What is the status of V to X if it's not already dead in the water? Yeah, I'm, I'm still <laughs> sore and disappointed uh, from the outcome of you know what happened with the FCC and their decision. I have not seen much progress on the cellular capabilities for communication, which was promised that we would see pretty much immediately if that decision were basically changed, right? To allow for the cellular networks to use the dedicated spectrum. Um, so, you know, I guess I'm double disappointed uh, that we that we kind of, you know, haven't seen the fruits of that labor. And, you know, I think that perhaps, you know, there's still a, a, a chance that DSRC as a technology could be viable. Um, we just got to figure out how to fit it back into the spectrum in some way. But I think that, you know, the, the cost of it, the availability of it, the benefits to consumers to not have to pay for a subscription to another thing, another cell phone plan are still real and practical. And the reason that I still am holding a little small thread of hope is because everywhere else in the world, it is only the U.S. that is headed solely down this cellular pathway. Everywhere else in the world is seeing the benefits of the radio DSRC communication. And so, you know, I hope that maybe that will enlighten someone somewhere that can make some change. All right. Uh, one last topic I want to hit with you. Uh, on the infotainment front, we've seen a new version of Apple CarPlay uh, in recent weeks, and it's more immersive than anything we've ever seen before. It's not only infotainment, but there's lots of screens on the dashboard, and they're displaying safety information and information that would be on a traditional instrument cluster. Are, are there any qualms about letting Apple take over safety-related functions and, and displaying them on screens that you tell me may or may not be distracting to begin with? So um, Apple is doing exactly what Google has already done. So Android Automotive, not to be confused with Android Auto that you plug and play into your, your car, Android Automotive is a native infotainment system. So all the safety warnings and the display of the what gear you're in and everything is built into this Android Automotive native system. And we have that in a Polestar that's, that's sitting right outside here as well. So this is just Apple doing it too. In terms of like, is that okay? Like it, it's probably going to happen. And if they do it right, then awesome. But from my experience and what I saw in the, the Google version is that there's also a lot that can go very wrong. And it's important to consider the differences between using a phone or a tablet that we're using, you know, Android or, you know, the, the Apple ecosystem, iOS, those screens are meant to draw and keep your attention for as long as possible as basically a moneymaker. We want to do the opposite of that with screens in our cars. 
And so that's a huge consideration. And, and even just the interaction of, you know, I'm holding a tablet or a phone in front of me, just the, you know, the affordances, the, the actual touch type of interaction with these devices are much different when they're now in a different spot, perhaps behind the shifter and, you know, over here and you got to swipe and do these weird things all while driving down a bumpy road and this huge touch screen and you're trying to find a place to anchor your hand. And so a lot can go wrong. And so I think if it's done thoughtfully and carefully, it can go right. But, you know, cautious, I'm cautiously awaiting uh, when I see this in a car. I may just be showing my age, but I so prefer the knob for my volume and turning oh the, bu the button for turning on like the seat warmer or air conditioning. Nothing drives me more crazy than if I get into a car and right now it's summer. So I get into a car and it's like 130 degrees inside because it's sitting in the sun and I have to wait for the screen to like boot up before I can change the temperature because there's no knob. Like, come on, I just want a little knob. I just want to change this while I'm waiting. Yeah, so I feel you. <laughs> All right, glad I'm not the only one. Yeah, no, you're not alone. <laughs> Kelly, one last question for you. Uh, I'm curious about your career path. I know that before Consumer Reports, you had positions uh, doing you know, graduate research with, with NASA and with Peloton, the, the trucking company, not the exercise technology company, to be clear. Uh, what did you learn from those experiences and how did they help inform what you're doing today? Yeah, so um, you know, the projects that I was working on with NASA were kind of really trying to understand the you know, human component of, of systems, right? As a human being is part of a system. So you know, nothing is in a silo, everything you know, depends on each other and even just doing a specific task. If you're, for example, you know, relating it to what I do now parked in a car and you ask someone to change the radio, like, okay, great. But now, you know, in this whole environment of the vehicle, you're driving down the road and now you ask someone to do it. Perhaps there's a bunch of clutter and screens and who, who knows what in between. And now it's much harder. And so, you know, that was, that gave me a lot of training to really take into my applied type of work here at Consumer Reports. And yeah, working with the, the Peloton, not the bicycle company, the trucking company and platooning was also really interesting to get kind of a inside look into, you know, how these vehicles are operating and, you know, working off of each other and all of these components of the drivers still may need to be there and take over. And so, yeah, I mean, all of those things really helped you know, create the perspective that I have that I've taken to, you know, forming the usability and an ADAS part of our test program. Great. Well, Kelly, so great to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for making the time. Thank you. This was really fun. All right. Did you understand the difference between lane keeping and lane centering before this conversation? I had some vague idea that they were different before, but uh, I appreciate Kelly shedding some light on the difference and the implications of that difference. And overall, I'm left thinking uh, from this conversation about the juxtaposition between the general idea that the industry has come so far since Consumer Reports started its testing in 2018, and yet there's still so much more to learn about driver assist systems and their safety. If you'd like this episode of Shift, please give us a like and subscribe on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For today, thank you again to Kelly. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next time.